God, we do pause and uh, give you praise that you are omnipresent. God, we thank you that you are here with us today. And yet, God, we ask, Lord, we, we desperately need to experience your presence in a tangible way. God, we need this book to come alive in our hearts, and we, we need your help for that, God. We don't want this to just be a, an, an intellectual exercise, but Lord, we want this to transform our lives and our hearts. So God, would you do the work through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are finishing First Peter today, okay? It's been uh, somewhat of a long journey uh, throughout this year, and even parts of of last year, we've been in this book for uh, a while, and I don't know about you, but I've greatly enjoyed spending time in this letter. Just so many amazing truths and timely applications. I know for me personally that uh, I can't wait to share with you uh, during our time together today. But if you're new today, this is a really, really good Sunday to be here because you're going to, in a sense, get kind of an overview of the entire letter in one Sunday. And so you can walk out of here kind of feeling like you cheated the system a little bit with, okay, that's what First Peter is about, good. But just to encourage you, read it, okay? So don't just come and, and move on, but read it. Or if you're here and you've been with us throughout this whole journey, if there's a particular theme or passage that you're like, wow, that was good, I forgot about that, just encourage you to go back, maybe listen to that sermon on our website, or just look at it in the text again in depth. Um, we're talking about it in your small group, so lots of things that we're going to cover uh, together today. Well, before we get to uh, the review, um, I wanted just to pause and just remind us of the five reasons why we chose First Peter now. Okay, if you remember, I preached uh, last September on why First Peter uh, now as kind of an introduction, and I just want to revisit those five reasons as we look through this entire letter on a high level, some of the common themes, major themes, um, before we dive in. Okay, so uh, here are the five reasons. Number one, first reason why we chose this book now is because I wanted us to see that the shifting cultural reality around us is an opportunity to be embraced and not a trend to be feared. Like as you and I have noticed, kind of the, the culture is progressing and it's moving away from, from Christianity more and more. Our, our reaction shouldn't be fear, shouldn't be to be afraid of that, but because our citizenship is in heaven, because this is not our home, and because King Jesus is on the throne forever and ever, that should instill, not fear, but boldness and confidence as we live out our faith. Second reason why uh, we were in this book now is I wanted us to see uh, who we really are and what our calling is all about. I wanted us to specifically see what does it mean to be a spiritual exile in this world? How, do, how are we in this world but not of the world? What does that even mean and what does that look like? And I thought that was really important because of last fall with the election. Uh, man, it's so easy to forget that of who our king is and, and our priorities. And, and so this, this letter really helped us with that. Number three, another reason we spent time in this letter is so that we wouldn't be surprised at the weirdness of Christianity, that we would actually embrace uh, some of the, the strangeness of what it means to be a Christian, that because we are holy and set apart and different than the world with different priorities, different values, the world's going to look at us and, and consider us weird and different and strange. And so I, I just don't want us to be uh, taken off guard when that happens or when a comment is made from unbelievers. But yeah, we, we believe some weird stuff. You know, we believe that there's a son of God that 
came out of heaven, was 100% man, 100% God, died, was raised back to life, and he's coming again on a big white horse. Uh, and like, that's pretty strange. And so that's not something to be, uh, to shy away from or water down what we believe, but to actually embrace. Number four, the fourth reason is that it's hoping that this series would actually drive us deeper into the word of God. That because of our identity as exiles in this world, I'm hoping, at least my hope was, that we would view this book as incredibly relevant. And not something that's like distant or can't speak into our day in, day out lives, but actually it's incredibly relevant for how to live in this world but not be of this world. So it's hoping that our time, our commitment, our desire for the word would increase throughout this series. And then the last reason why we picked this book is just to help us mobilize toward godliness. That through seeing what it means to be in exile, I was hoping that we'd have a heightened sense of urgency towards personal holiness and godliness. That there is something special and unique that takes place when the people of God gather together, absolutely, no doubt. But yet when we scatter throughout the week, we are to be light in a dark world. And so we want to make sure that our godliness and our holiness uh, is producing that light of Christ living in and through us. So those are the five reasons. If you remember, I think God has really blessed our time uh, in this letter. And, and so what I want to do this morning is actually look at the last three verses here and then use, uh, use uh, one of those verses to serve as kind of a summary as we look at the entire letter, just the common themes, uh, some of the high points throughout our time together. So let's jump in. <clears throat> and yet, if you look at the beginning of, or at the end of verse 11, uh, after you read that, let's read verse, verses 10 and 11. It says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You read that, and if you're like me, like, you're thinking, okay, it's done. Like, we're, we're done with the letter. Like, like, there's a period there indefinitely. Like, there should be nothing else that he has to say. It's almost like this, this climactic, doxological ending to this amazing letter. And, and we should be like, all right, we're, we're going to walk away. And yet, Peter tacks on three more verses. Like, he's got a little bit more to say. It's almost like a, it's almost like a P.S. in this letter. And it's not hidden in the Greek or anything like that. But, you know, P.S. Do we still do P.S.'s in letters? Do we do snail mail and write P.S.'s at the end? And like a P.S. is a postscript. It's like something important to the letter, right? That's, you don't want to skip over or, or, uh, or, or skip or whatever. So I, I think Peter is providing in verses 12, 13, and 14 kind of a, a P.S. to the entire letter. And I think the bulk of the letter ends, yeah, in verse 11, but these last three verses are incredibly important. I remember my first letter that I ever received, I was in fifth grade, and, um, and I had this huge crush on this girl named Michaela. And I uh, sat next to her in class, and she hands me this letter that she hand wrote. And she didn't text it to me, or it wasn't a social media thing, but she literally wrote a hand letter to me, and I think we're missing that in today's culture. But she wrote me this letter. It had three lines, and she said, I've enjoyed sitting next to you in class all year. Really want to hang out more. Let's hang out during recess. And I'm thinking, wow, like this is awesome. My heart's, you know, pumping. I'm like, man, this is going to be great. And then I get to the PS, and it says, and don't forget to bring your friend Michael. 
And I was like, wow, okay, that's so much of a good letter there. So, but the PS was like really important. Like if I would have skipped over the PS and just like showed up, be like, what's up, girl? Like how would, you know, what would, you know uh, that probably would not have gone well. She probably would have looked at me like, dude, what, where's Michael? Like, so um, I shared that in the first service and my wife's in the front row, like, like, like she's mad at me. We're going to hear about that later. But uh, anyways, <laughs> But the PS is, is really important. It has, it has the potential to really shape like the entire letter, even to add or edify or, or to kind of change the, the meaning of the letter. And, and I think Peter is doing something similar here with these last three verses. I think he's, he's further clarifying the main thrust of this letter in these short three verses. Had an amazing time just looking into uh, these verses. And there's a lot in here that's really helpful for us as we think about why did Peter write this letter and some of the practical applications for us. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the people that Peter talks about in verses 12 through 14, specifically Silvanus and Mark. And then I want to look at the place that Peter refers to. And then I want to look at the purpose that Peter states and why he wrote this letter. Okay, so people, place, and purpose in verses 12 through 14. And we'll spend the majority of our time in the purpose. That will serve as kind of a summary of the whole letter. So, number one, let's look at the people that Peter talks about here. You should have noticed two people, two individuals that really come out of nowhere as he's closing up this letter. The first is Silvanus. He says in verse 12, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. Now, who in the world is this guy, and why does Peter include him? Well, Silvanus is the Latinized form of the Greek name Silas. Okay, this guy is the same guy that Luke refers to as Paul's companion in Acts 16.19. That Silas or Silvanus was one of the trusted leaders of the early church. He was kind of part of the core leadership team. In fact, he co-authored First uh, and Second Thessalonians with Paul and Timothy. Like this guy was kind of a stud in the early church. He was a top leader. But one of the key roles that Silvanus had was he was to carry letters written by uh, the different apostles, and he he was supposed to take those to the different churches dispersed throughout Asia Minor. And we can see that here uh, with with Peter here in this letter. He talks about by Silvanus, so he's referencing the fact that Silvanus is taking this letter from where Peter was to the scattered churches uh, throughout Asia Minor. So he played a significant role in that. He did this uh, another time in Acts 15.23, where if you remember that chapter, that was kind of a a very, very significant chapter in Acts, where you have really the top leaders of the early church meeting together. You've got Peter, James, John, all those guys, and they're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do with the old, uh, old covenant, with the Old Testament law, now that we have Jesus? Do we follow all of them still, or do we dismiss all of them? Like, what do we do with this? Because we have Jews and Gentiles coming together. So the leaders meet together, and they make some important decisions, and they write a letter, and they're trying to send it to different churches. And one in particular is Antioch. And who, sends, who, who carries that letter to that church? Well, it's our boy Silvanus or Silas that helps uh, carry that to, uh, to that church. So this is kind of one of his roles uh, within uh, the early church. Now, another person that Peter talks about is Mark, and this is indeed John Mark, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. 
And it's really interesting, when you look through the Gospel of Mark, he was heavily influenced by Peter, okay? And you can kind of read through the lens of that Gospel through Peter's influence because there are a lot of stories about Peter throughout that Gospel, and not, not many of them are positive. And so there's kind of a transformation of Peter's character and Peter's humility um, because he's kind of looked at as kind of this impulsive uh, not really faithful to Jesus, just that kind of character throughout uh, the Gospel of Mark. Mark was also the guy that, um, that was kind of the center of some drama between Paul and Barnabas. If you remember, um, Paul really did not consider Mark to be useful in Gospel ministry after that first missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to further recruit him, and so they had really kind of a, a huge disagreement there. And yet we do know that Paul and Mark did restore uh, and, and reconciled their relationship because of Colossians 4.10, how highly Paul spoke of Mark. So we do know that Peter and Mark had, um, had some interaction because Mark's mother's house was kind of the place that the early church would actually meet. And we know that from Acts 12.12. 12. So we knew there was some interaction, that there was a close relationship between Peter and uh, Mark, which is why I think um, Peter speaks of Mark as his son. That there is uh, some type of, uh, of relationship, not, not a real biological son, but son in the faith, this uh, symbolically using language there to, to ex- explain the relational closeness. The question is, like, why? Like, why introduce these two individuals as you close out this letter? Well, I think it's important to know, like, these are real people and real relationships that Peter had. And I think what Peter is trying to show us is, is the necessity of godly friendships in our lives. Like, you and I must have godly friendships that, that we can do life with, that have permission to speak into our lives, to, to challenge us, to encourage us, to fill up our souls. Why? Because it's hard to live out the Christian life. Like, when we experience hardship outside the church from people insulting us for our faith or persecution or this or that, we need people in our lives that have our back outside of our immediate family. And so my question for you in the beginning here is, do you have that in your life? Like people that can speak truth into, into your life. I just had lunch with a, um, a pastor on the south side of Indy this past week. We've been meeting uh, the last several months just trying to pour into each other and kind of even challenge each other in our ministries and to encourage each other. And, and I walked away from our meeting on Wednesday, and he, he was speaking into me and, and really challenging me and encouraging me. And my soul was just so filled up to be able to have somebody that's speaking into my life because I can't do this alone. I need people to be able to, to do that and be that for me. And I don't, I don't have any hard statistics with me this morning, but the majority of people that I have seen fall into sin did not have close godly friendships speaking into their life outside of their immediate family. And so I think part of the reason Peter is sliding in these two close friendships that he had with Sylvanus and uh, with Mark here is to show, look, this is really hard. You need people who you can take off the mask with and be genuine that can speak into uh, your life that know the depth of your soul. So those are, are the people. Let's also look at the place. So there is a specific place that, that Peter uh, talks about here in uh, this passage, verse 13. 
He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Now, who is this or what is this or where is this? Well, uh, I bear good news this morning that there is virtual unanimous agreement that Peter is referring to his church located at Rome. Okay, We know from Acts 12.17 that Peter was driven out of his hometown in Jerusalem because of persecution and that he went somewhere else. Well, most likely that place was indeed Rome. We know that because Babylon is often used symbolically throughout the New Testament to refer to Rome. You know that in Revelation, John's writings, especially in Revelation 17 and 18, he uses kind of a code word for Rome uh, with Babylon. I think what Peter's doing here is Peter is further identifying himself with the recipients of this letter. That he's trying to let them know, like, hey, I, I know what it's like not only to be a spiritual exile, but also physically to be driven out of my home, to be kind of scattered and dispersed throughout the word, just throughout the world, just like you were. I know what that's like. And yet, I think what else he's doing here, I think he's emphasizing again the theme of Christian community. Because he says, look, it, it's the church where Peter's at. We send our greetings to you, that there is this relationship, this community that Peter's trying to emphasize as he closes out this letter. Look at even verse 14. Kind of a strange thing to say here. He says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, what, what are we to do with that? Like, well, uh, this morning, I would love to, to do my first object lesson and explain uh, this verse. So if all the elders could come up on stage here for just a I'm just kidding, I'm not actually going to do that. You guys going to relax. You have these faces like, what's he? So we're not going to actually do that this morning. So um, Brad's relaxed over there, so it's good. Um, but what are we to do with this? Like, do we just skip over this? Like, what, what are we to do in the, in the 21st century in Fishers, Indiana? Well, I think a really important biblical principle when you're studying Scripture, even interpreting Scripture, is to understand that there are so many principles, there's so many commands, so many things that are said that are packaged in a specific cultural context. Now, your role, my role as we study Scripture is to identify and to discern what is the timeless, universal principle here that's being applied to a specific cultural context that may not be applicable to us today. Okay, that's an incredibly important thing to do as you are reading uh, Scripture. We do this all the time somewhat naturally, and yet we do this sometimes when we should, we should be doing this more. I'll give you an example. So when you, uh, when you read the command, love your neighbor as yourself, okay, that is a timeless universal command principle. That's going to be applied and look much different uh, in Southeast Asia compared to Fishers, Indiana. Okay, so there is a cultural context that we take these principles and we apply them in that's then going to make us living them out look a little bit different. I think Peter is doing that here. We need to do that here. So what is the timeless principle that Peter is talking about? Well, I think what he's driving home is that the church should be a place where there is intentional hospitality and warmth and acceptance. I think that's what he's driving at, that the Eastern cultures at this time period, their greeting and display of affection and acceptance was a kiss on the cheek. Okay, Now, we don't apply that here at College Park Fishers, uh, but the way that we do apply that is by the type of environment that we're creating as we gather here together. 
And this is a responsibility that each and every one of us has in the church. So you have this responsibility to ensure that we're creating this type of environment at College Park Fishers. So how might you apply this in your own life? Like, are you someone who who is warm and engaging with people on Sunday morning? Are you someone who only talks to people that you know, or are you intentional about looking for people who might be by themselves, who might be isolated, or who might be new? Are you serving with with joy when we gather together today to to make sure that there is this environment of of warmth and acceptance. We do lots of different things here at this church to to help with that. Like we've got, um, for one, we've got donuts out there that help create that type of of environment. But we've got greeters, we've got name tags. Like we do sometimes a meet and greet to make sure that at least everybody's going to be talked to before they leave church, right? We've got uh, ushers here, a next step. So like we've got some things lined up to help create that atmosphere. But to be honest with you, we still have gaps. Like, I mean, every church has gaps, but you need to know that we expect you to fill those gaps. Like in between kind of the uh, the metaphorical uh, kind of baton that's being passed from each team. Like, we need you to have those conversations with people in the hallway and after the service and, and in the parking lot to make sure that, that there is that type of environment being created here at College Park Fishers, to grab lunch with people after church or grab coffee with somebody throughout the week and building that type of, of relational connectedness so that there is kind of this atmosphere of a kiss of love that could be described at College Park Fisher. I think it's important when you go through suffering and hardship outside the church. So the people, the place. Now, number three, the purpose. Okay, look at the purpose. We'll spend the majority of our time here uh, on this last point. I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 12, Peter does indeed write uh, and explain the purpose of this letter, of why he wrote uh, First Peter. He says in verse 12, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, <clears throat> exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter says that the reason why I wrote this letter, I've written briefly to you. Why? To exhort and to declare that this is the true grace of God. Now, now, why did he talk about the true grace of God throughout, throughout this letter? Well, it's in order for us to stand firm in it. Okay, that's the driving force of why he wrote 1 Peter. So the question that you should be asking in your mind as you're studying Scripture is, what is the this that he's referring to when he says that this is the true grace of God? Or what is the it? He says, stand firm in it. What's the it that he's talking about? You should circle that and think through, okay, what what is he referring to here? Well, what Peter is is referring to is indeed really the whole letter of 1 Peter. All of what he has said, he wants us to to stand firm in that so that we can persevere in the true grace of God. See, Peter knows that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of being insulted for your faith, when you're a spiritual exile, you need something firm, steadfast, and trustworthy to stand on. You need something that's going to hold you up in the midst of that. And, and what I want to do for the rest of our time together is I want to uh, identify five pillars of truth that we can stand on as a way to kind of summarize First uh, Peter 1. I think these are the five major themes 
These are the five things that have resonated, I think, most with us throughout our time together that I want to highlight and drive home as a way to know this is what we are to stand on. Okay, with me? Here we go. Number one, we've got chosen exiles are called to be holy. It's the first pillar. We need to know this in order to stand firm that we are a chosen people, but we are called to live a certain way. Now, I love the way that that Peter uh, contrasted really throughout this letter, this idea that you've been rejected by the world and yet you've been chosen by God, right? You're going to be insulted by the world and yet you are precious in God's sight. He contrasts that all throughout this letter. First Peter 1.1, he starts off with a bang and, and talks about that. He says, to those who are elect exiles, okay, to those who are chosen exiles, he contrasts that. Or chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Okay, now why does Peter highlight this all throughout the letter? Well, Peter wants us to know that we've been chosen and called out from something to something. That we've been, in other words, we've been saved from our sin to a life of godliness and holiness. So it's not just that we've been chosen and we can live however we want to live, but we've been chosen in order to pursue godliness and holiness. And one thing that I have loved and I've appreciated about Peter's writing is he he doesn't just drop commands and walks away, but he actually explains and unpacks how to live those out. And so Peter doesn't just say, go be holy and walks away and moves on or go live like Jesus and moves. No, he actually says, be holy and I'm I'm gonna show you how to do that. And so this is in numerous uh, spots in chapter 1, but let me look at chapter 4 with you about how we are to pursue holiness. That he talks about having right thinking plus right desiring equals right living. You remember that chapter 4? He states that clearly. Verse 1, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ. And then verse 2, what's the result of right thinking? So you no longer live out of human passions or desires, but your desires are funneled into the will of God. So what's the result of that? Well, verses 3 and 4, so that the world will be surprised when you don't join in with their sinful living. So right thinking plus right desiring equals right living. Remember the acronym LEAD, LEAD, to kind of explain what does it mean to arm yourselves with the, the same mind as Christ? that the L stands for learn about Christ primarily through the word. And then through learning about Christ, E is examine, that we allow the word of God to examine us, to be a mirror, to to be able to kind of expose things in our lives. That A is adjust, so so based on the examination of the word that, that we then change or we adjust the way that we live our lives. And then the D stands for determine. That based on what the Word of God shows us, that we are determined not to go back to that sin, but to pursue a a, a life of godliness and to pursue uh, Jesus. Now, this is an important pillar, I think, uh, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of, of hardship and pain, because no matter what you are going through, you still have an assignment from God. And that assignment is to be godly. Okay? Now, look, I know that sounds incredibly simplistic. I know that's like, well, yeah, duh. But look, if, if you're honest, and I'm honest, like, we overcomplicate this all the time. 
Like when we go through suffering and, and hardship and we're asking all these questions, we're trying to get our bearings, we're trying to figure this thing out, it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that even in the midst of suffering, you are called to be godly and to be holy people. I get asked often as I meet with, with different people in our church of, Chris, how, how can I help you or how can I help the ministry of College Park Fishers? And like my, my response is, be godly. Pursue Jesus. Love Jesus. Live out this word. It's a great way that you can help the ministry of College Park Fishers that we can't lose sight of our primary assignment from God is to be a godly people. I think Peter is telling us that we've been chosen by God. We've been elected before the foundations of the world. We've been called out from darkness into his marvelous light, not to retreat into a self-focus and self-obsession, but in order to display to the world that the gospel actually works. And I think we do that primarily through godly living. So that's the first pillar. The second that we've seen is that suffering has purpose. Suffering has purpose. We've seen this as really, I think, central theme of this letter. We've seen over and over again Peter's um, desire for our expectations as followers of Jesus to expect suffering, expect hardship that this is coming. We even looked at last week how in the midst of suffering, understanding the who question is more satisfying than the why question. Understanding that the who, that it's God who's behind the suffering, God is with us in the midst of suffering, is more satisfying than why am I suffering? And yet, at the same time, it's really helpful to know why we're suffering, isn't it? Like, it's helpful to know some of the purposes that God has in the midst of hardship and suffering. So I think the who is most important. I think the second most important question is, why am I suffering? And I think that Peter has highlighted three purposes that God uh, has for us in the midst of suffering that I think can be applied to any type of suffering that we go through in this life. Even though Peter has specifically used suffering and talking about uh, being persecuted or receiving insult for being a follower of Jesus, but I think you can apply this to any kind of suffering. So here are three purposes that I, that I saw throughout this letter. The first one is that suffering tests or, or reveals the genuineness of our faith. You see this in chapter 1, verse, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testedness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that in there? He talks about the, the, these trials that we'll go through, and he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to praise God. That there's one of the purposes that we see when we go through suffering is God is trying to confirm in our heart what we actually believe. That it's one thing to claim that you believe in Jesus and that you follow Jesus when life is easy and you're not going through any hardship. It's something other when you're going through hardship and suffering and you're still declaring that Jesus is enough for you. So I think suffering, one of the purposes is it wants to authenticate our faith of what we believe. Do, do we really believe what we believe? And suffering has a way to demonstrate and to bring evidence to our, our faith. 
Second, I think the second purpose of suffering is that it presents the opportunity to display hope to the world around us. I think part of the role of suffering is that we have an opportunity to declare the saving power of Jesus Christ. This is really clear in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, when Peter says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And the point here is when you and I experience hardship or when we're being insulted uh, for our faith, the reaction is not just indifference or I'll pray for you, but the reaction, the call here is to bless and to love. Okay, that kind of ups the ante a little bit. It's not just to ignore those comments and I'll pray for you or whatever, but it's to lean into that and to bless and to love. Why? Because it presents an opportunity for them to ask why. It's for them to ask, why are you returning this insult with love? Why are you not reviling in return? Why are you holding your tongue and blessing? Well, it's a great opportunity to share the hope that is within you. So I think suffering does present an amazing opportunity to showcase the power of the gospel as we live out our holiness. And then number three here, I think the third purpose that Peter highlights for us in the midst uh, of suffering is that it provides a unique platform to glorify God. That glory is really the driving force of why God does what he does. That you can boil it down of why this happens or why that happens to the fact that God will receive glory, praise, worship, and the attention that he and he alone deserves. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. It says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? In praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the result is to glorify God, that the way that we do glorify God in the midst of suffering is by our response to suffering, that we lean into God, we lean into his promises, that we bless in return when we receive insults. And we declare with our lives that, that I want the presence of God in my life more than this suffering going away. That I would rather have the presence of God in my life with the suffering from the outside world rather than no suffering but no, no presence of God in my life. That when we live that out in our lives, that brings glory to God and that brags on the immense worth of Jesus Christ to a watching world. So the second pillar is that suffering has purpose, that it is not random. But number three, the third pillar I want us to see is that the church is to be a healthy place of refuge. Healthy place uh, of refuge. This is all over the place throughout First uh, Peter. And, and I don't know if you remember the quote that I used uh, by, by Russell Moore, that as the church becomes more strange to the world around us, that it actually creates a beautiful opportunity to, to point to Jesus. But let me just, let me just uh, read this quote by, by Russell Moore. He says, And we will be speaking not primarily to baptize pagans on someone's church roll, but to those who are hearing something new, maybe for the first time, that we will hardly be normal 
but we should have never tried to be. The best witness the church can offer to post-Christian America is to be the church as fiercely and creatively a minority as we can imagine. That our calling as the church is, is not to blend in with the world, but it's to be different, to be strange, because we've been called out as a, a holy nation, that we are set apart, different values, different desires, different uh, priorities as the world. And the world's going to look at that and look at us and consider us weird and different. But I want to encourage you, like, that their comments of us being strange or weird should not be because of our personalities. It should not be because we're annoying or because we dress weirdly or because our breath, our breath stinks. But we should be considered weird and strange because the church is a truly unified, loving, and humble group of people. And they look at that and they say, what is that? Like, you've got a group of people who truly love each other. You've got a group of people who, who, are not <clears throat> who are not proud, but are humble. And so we want that to be kind of the signature uh, of our church, is to be a group of people where, where the world looks at us and says, man, there is something remarkably different about how you guys live your lives. And I know for me personally, just looking through this letter, <clears throat> and I've, been, I've studied this letter numerous times before, but this pillar, this theme... <clears throat> was something that I, I just had not caught before. Like, I, I looked at First Peter as really just a letter written to how do you respond to suffering from the outside world? And yet, how many times did Peter, like, stop and pivot and talk about how to live with other believers in the church? Like, it's all over the place. And I, I think it's a, it's a really important uh, pillar of, uh, of what it means to stand firm because when we experience hardship and difficulty from those outside the church, the last thing that we want is for the church to be a place of relational strife. The last thing that we need or want is for there to be drama within the people of God. Like when we're experiencing hardship, we want church to be a place of refuge. We want this to be a true sanctuary. We want this to be a, a safe place for us to, to find rest, to find peace, to find unity within the, the people of God. You see that in chapter 3, verse 8, with those, those five characteristics that should describe the church. You see that even in chapter 5 with, with humility. But I don't know about you, but ha have, you been, have you been personally challenged by maybe one of those characteristics of what the church should be like throughout our study of 1 Peter? Like when you look at chapter 3, verse 8, of, of being unified, of, of being sympathetic, of having a love, tenderheartedness, and, and a humble mind. Is there one of those characteristics that really has, has resonated with you that, man, I need to be more consistent. I need to live that out more faithfully. Maybe in other words, like, if College Park Fishers was a church just made up of you, like we took you and, and we multiplied you by 600, how would, how would you describe that church? Like, would that church be a place of unity? Would that church be a, a warm and, and hospitable church? Would, would that be a generous church? Would that be a place where discipleship and, and evangelism is being lived out? Would that be a humble church? Like, this pillar is it's challenging, right? But it's incredibly important because if we're not taking responsibility, each and every one of us, to live out this this pillar, then, then we're not going to be able to create a healthy place of, of growth and safety 
as we encounter more and more hardship from those outside uh, the world or the church. Number four, the fourth pillar that, uh, that we've seen really throughout uh, this letter is that submission is the normative posture of a growing Christian. Okay? This is another thing that I learned throughout this letter I did not see uh, in my other times is, is how frequently submission shows up. It is all over the place. Submit to, to those inside the church and even outside the church. Let me give you a couple here. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. We submit to every human institution, including the government. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Submission should take place for employee to employer. There should be submission within the marriage. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Submission to elders by the congregation, chapter 5. And submission to God by the elders and congregation. And then ultimately, there should be submission to God in the midst of suffering. And we've seen that throughout the letter. And so another question for you is, is has God revealed to you a specific person or relationship that you need to more faithfully and consistently live out submission? Has God shown you that, man, like I really struggle submitting to this person or to this institution, and I need to be more faithful with that? I think that this is a huge pillar that that Peter has identified for us because you're not going to find a growing Christian who is not regularly and consistently living out submission in his or her relationships. You're not going to find it. Someone who is, who is progressively looking more and more like Jesus, yet, yet isn't submitting to their boss, yet isn't submitting to the leaders of their church, yet isn't submitting to, to her husband. You're not, going to find, you're not going to find a person like that. And furthermore, I think, I think the, the real reason that Peter's driving this home, because one of the hardest things to get to in the midst of suffering and difficulty, is to say in your heart to God, God, this is painful, this, is, this, this hurts, I do not like this, but God, I'm going to submit to you in this season of my life as long as you want me to be here. I think that is incredibly difficult to get to that place in the midst of suffering and to stop asking God to take away suffering but to say, God, I'm in it as long as you want me to be in it. So how do you get there? Well, I think there's a relationship, a connection between our horizontal submission and our vertical submission. That the more that you are submitting to the relationships God has placed in your life, that's reflecting your ability to reflect to God vertically. And so again, if you're not submitting to these relationships in your life, you're not going to submit to God in the midst of suffering. So it's an incredibly important pillar as we think about what it means to stand firm in the midst of hardship. Now, number five, the the last pillar, the last really key theme. And man, this this is sweet. This is is all over the place, but this is a major theme. Jesus' life and death saves us but also gives us an example to follow. Did you catch this in our, in our study of 1 Peter? How many times he gets back to Jesus? Like he's talking about godliness, but hey, this is about Jesus. And we're going to talk about submission, but this is about following Jesus. Like suffering, I know is hard, but hey, this is all about Jesus. And, and Peter was screaming at us through the letter, Jesus really did suffer. Like he really died. He really went through all of this. I love 
chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. Maybe my favorite section in this whole, this whole letter. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, period. Man, what a, what a beautiful section about what it means that Jesus lived this life, that he actually did die, but he also gave us this example to live. Now, why is this a pillar? I think it's a pillar because Jesus never asks us to go through anything that he has not already gone through. Jesus isn't asking us to suffer, and yet he never suffered. No, 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 he's asking us to suffer because he suffered, and we are called to follow in his footsteps. I think Peter has been driving home in our hearts and in our lives our expectations of the Christian life. Like, what do you expect this Christian life to be? Easy? Like, comfortable? Like, trial-free life? No, 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 no. If Jesus is our Lord and King and Master, we are called to follow in his footsteps. So how can you and I expect to live a life that's easier than the life that Jesus lived? It doesn't make any sense. We are called to follow in his footsteps and to embrace the suffering that you and I will experience as followers of Jesus, and yet not to lose hope. Now, we can expect this. We don't need to be surprised by it, that when when your coworker at work lays into you because you're a follower of Jesus, don't be shocked by that. When a family member makes fun of you because you love Jesus, don't be surprised by that. When, when, When a friend questions, you actually believe this book? You actually believe everything in here? Don't be surprised when when you get pushback for being a follower of, of Jesus. Expect it, but don't lose hope because Jesus has given us this manual, this, this game plan of what to do in the midst of suffering that we bless in return. We don't revile uh, back. So how has this pillar, how has this theme shaped what your soul looks at and dwells upon? Like, how has this theme just changed the way what you behold in your hearts? Has, has your beholding of Jesus increased as we've, as we've moved through this letter of 1 Peter? Just how many times Peter gets back to Jesus? This whole thing climaxes in Jesus. And we look at these, these five pillars. Yeah, be godly, but be godly because you love Jesus. That, that suffering has purpose, but it has purpose because you're walking with Jesus that the church is to be a healthy place because it's Jesus' bride, that we want to be able to, uh, to, to, to submit to one another in different relationships because that's a symbol of Jesus' love to the church, that Jesus' life and death is an example for us to follow because Jesus is worth it. This whole thing climaxes in the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus actually is. And look, I, I, just, I love chapter 2, specifically verse 25 where he says he describes each of us as straying sheep. Man, does that resonate with you or what? Like each of us, we, 
we have all rebelled against God. We, we've all strayed from him. We, we are all, we have all been far from God. Like in our own sin, we, we wanted nothing to do with the chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And yet, the beauty of what Peter has highlighted is that God has wooed us to himself. He has opened our blind eyes to seeing the beauty of Jesus and what he has accomplished on the cross. That Jesus went through all this suffering for us, not only to give us an example, but to actually defeat sin. He went through the worst kind of suffering on the cross, taking all of our sin, absorbing the whole wrath of God in order to finish suffering and sin, to defeat our, our enemy, defeat sin, defeat death through his resurrection. Like that's, that's the whole point of, of this letter, is that King Jesus wins. And by faith, you attach yourself to Jesus, you also win and persevere through any type of hardship or suffering. It's amazing. Like that just stirs something like within, within me as I look at this letter. And friend, if you're here today and, and you have not submitted to King Jesus and, and given your life to him, trusted him with, with your salvation, can, can I plead with you that, that none of these pillars matter besides that? Can, can I encourage you and exhort you not to Leave this place without deciding in your heart to bend your knee and to give your life and faith to Jesus to save you from your sin. You can't save yourself. God's standards profess you can't be good enough. You can't go to church enough for God to look at you and love you. You need Jesus' righteousness to cover you and for your faith in him to attach yourself with King Jesus so God looks at you and accepts you? Have you done that in your life yet? Man, what a, what a beautiful letter. What a beautiful book of the Bible. They're glorious, glorious truths, timeless applications. And I don't know about you, but I just have loved learning about these commands, about this high calling. And yet, God gives us the grace. God sustains us. God enables us to actually live this out. So let's not forget that we are chosen exiles, called to holiness, that suffering has purpose, that the church is to be a healthy place of refuge, and that submission is the, is the normative posture of a growing Christian, and that Jesus saves and gives us an example to follow. Praise be to God, to him, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, with our heads bowed this morning, I just wonder if you're here today and, and you're hearing about the beauty of Jesus and what he has done for you on the cross, and there, there's something within your heart and your soul that's, that's stirring right now, and you're wondering in yourself, like, I, I want that and I need that in my life, and you're wondering how, how can I be saved? Well, I just want to encourage you this morning, if that is you, I just want to give you some language this morning of how to give your life to Jesus and, and become a Christian. And before I do, I, I want to encourage you that a prayer does not save you, but your faith saves you. This is only the beginning of what it means to follow Jesus. But that is, if that is you, I just want you to say to God in your heart something uh, like this. God, you are holy and I am not. God, I am a sinner in desperate need of your saving work. So God, I fully trust, 
put my faith in Jesus who took my sin for me on the cross, who purchased my freedom and my redemption in his resurrection. And I give my life to you. I turn from my sin and I trust in you and you alone. Thank you for your free gift of everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen.